Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Angels to aliens. From ghost stories to angel encounters. Bigfoot sightings. Alien abduction. Near death experiences. And more. Get advice and insight with Angels to Aliens. Heidi Hollis. The Outlander. Outlander. Welcome, welcome to Angels to Aliens with me, Heidi Hollis, the Outlander here on the Believe Podcast Network, which is the number one podcast network for professionals. And the question always is, do you believe? Join me now where we discuss the most incredible stories on the planet from the paranormal to other mysteries. And I always welcome you, the listener, to send in your personal stories about anything out of the ordinary or if you just like to comment. And remember, if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. And we are available on your favorite directories like a Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. And you can always find us on Believe.com. That is B-L-E-A-V.com and at Believe Podcasts. And know that you can always find me at one Heidi Hollis on most social media. Now, I've got a fabulous guest today, and I'm super excited to talk to him, and you're just going to love this conversation. I have Ralph Blumenthal, who is an award-winning reporter for the New York Times from 1964 to 2009, and he's written seven books on organized crime, his cultural history, and he led the Times Metro team that won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage of the 1993 truck bombing of the World Trade Center. Now, and during the coronavirus pandemic, he contributed to articles to the Times and other publications and worked from home on his Barack Archives blog, An Adventure in Democracy, and has given virtual talks on his new book, The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. And this is especially what we're going to discuss today. How are you doing today, Ralph? Great, Heidi. Thanks for having me. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm thrilled to have you on the program. I mean, your work, I mean, how it, it's very, really difficult not to be a fan. I mean, <laughs> you have done so much, and I am absolutely fascinated that you became fascinated on the topics of the aliens, UFOs, and John Mack. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and thoughts on these? Sure. Um... Well, as you indicated, it was not my regular fare, uh, 45 years at the New York Times. Um, I was covering, um, and I did investigative reporting, covering the mafia, cops, uh, crime, politics, uh, a lot of things, uh, Nazi war criminals, uh, um, made a specialty of that for a while, uh, very earthbound topics. Um, but then something happened in 2004 that uh, sort of uh, woke me up or put me on a new track. Um, and that was, I was a correspondent in Texas for the New York Times. And I picked up a copy of a book by John Mack, a Harvard psychiatrist. It was his second book, um, writing about his investigation of alien encounters. And uh, that, you know, really set me back. I thought it was interesting that a Harvard psychiatrist would be so interested and intrigued by the, the idea of uh, people having uh, encounters or being abducted by aliens, which, which he investigated. 
um, very seriously. Um, and um, so I thought he'd make a great interview for the New York Times. Uh, I was kind of naive. I didn't realize how uh, famous he already was. He'd been written up in the Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize writing about Lawrence of Arabia. Um, he did a biography of T.E. Lawrence, um, very involved in Middle East peace talks and uh, uh, protested nuclear weapons. He'd been involved in a lot of things. He was, he was pretty famous, very famous. Um, so I thought I'd give him a call. And I, a few days later, I picked up the paper and saw he, he'd been killed. Uh, he'd been run over in London, uh, looking the wrong way and run over by a drunk driver. So mm. that obviously made it impossible to, to interview him, but I reached out to his family and I got access to his archives. It ignited my interest. And I spent the next 16 years writing uh, The Believer. So uh, that's how I came to it. My goodness. So I didn't realize that you put that much time. That's that's really a lot of dedication. So you really took some serious deep dives into all aspects of the UFO alien phenomena, then out, even outside of John Mack? Yeah, well, I had to educate myself because, you know, I grew up uh, in an era of science fiction where everybody was reading, you know, Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov. And I got really interested in that, you know, uh, voyages to Mars and, and you know, uh, but it was fiction. And uh, so I put that aside when I started my my you know professional career. Um, but then when I um, you know uh, sort of um, got into John Mack's book and learned about him and his interest, and it, it ignited my interest, uh, it it really intrigued me. And to study his his interest and why he got so involved in it, uh, it took me a long time. I got access to his archives. From his family, which you know made no preconditions, by the way. Wow! Um, but I, uh, you know, read all his material, listened to his own therapy sessions as a psychiatrist. He, you know, subjected himself to therapy. Um, works with his, you know, experiencers. Um, all the things I, I studied at great length. So yeah, I really did get into it. Yeah, I, I often can't help but to wonder where we would be at if John Mack were still alive and continued the great work that he was doing, but people like yourselves have really uh, kind of picked it up and, and gone forward with it, which is, it's, it's so, it puts people like myself at ease knowing that, that you've done uh, so much background, uh, so much work and, and really gotten to the mindset of what drove him. So what do you feel drove him? What was this? <laughs> well, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, he grew up in a very conventional German Jewish household, a fairly wealthy household. His father was a um, uh, heir to a considerable fortune, but he was a professor of English. His his mother died when he was uh, eight and a half months old of appendicitis, and that was a loss that haunted him his whole life, which came out really in his search for you know, the missing components in the cosmos. And his stepmother was also a professor. So he, um, he came from a very conventional background. And through a series of steps I outlined in the book, um, his mind got opened up to the uh, existence of all, of all these other states of consciousness and the idea that things may be out there that we can't uh, really understand in our reality. So, um, that's what got him interested, and uh, he, he really learned of the phenomenon from another uh, pioneer named Bud Hopkins, 
um, who was an artist who uh, had seen a UFO and got interested in the subject and did his own research with experiencers. And, and John Mack learned from him and collected his own group of experiencers and, and studied their stories. And the more he heard, the more he uh, became convinced that no uh, existing explanation could account for the experiences that, that, that they were recounting. Um, he didn't just you know, glom onto this and say, I believe this now. Uh, he he uh, went along a path um, that essentially was the path I went along, tracing it uh, to see why he, he ended up convinced the way he was that some other reality had penetrated our reality, which is probably one, one way of putting it. Wow, that's, that's a... That it, it helps to understand what built that character to to do what he did and to pick up where where he went with it. So, in so you had access to all the folks that he interviewed. Did you see some patterns that you weren't expecting exactly, and and what was revealed to him? Yeah, well, he he interviewed many more people than than I could interview, uh, but I did interview some of the people he interviewed because some of them. Um, he interviewed under pseudonyms, and he, he wrote up 13 case studies in his first book called Abduction. Um, but uh, I got to know some of the people nice. who came out later under their own names and came forward publicly. And I found other people who uh, came forward since uh, he died, uh, who I interviewed myself. And um, um, it, it, it is there. The, the pattern is, and this is what struck John Mack so forcefully, is that these people came from uh, every walk of life, uh, every age group, uh, every background, um, men and women, sometimes children as young as two or three years old who couldn't be accused of you know, getting their information from books or movies. They would say things like, you know, little man, take me up into the sky, I fly in the sky. Um, so he, he found a basic consistency in these stories, uh, which was really interesting. People from all over and even other countries. Uh, he went to you know, South America and uh, Australia to investigate this phenomenon. So there was a basic consistency to these stories that really struck him. Um, and on the other hand, there were so many little details that were individual so that um, it couldn't be that these people were reading off some script or you know, all agreeing to tell one story. Uh, the stories had an infinite number of strange details and one story seemed stranger than the next. So uh, you know, there was a consistency, but no uh, real perfect pattern. Um, so those are only two of the things that, that convinced him that there was something really interesting going on here. Yeah. So when you say some strange patterns, I can't help but to think we're, we're talking about less physical experiences. Did he delve into that where people said they had out of body contact with other beings? Oh, absolutely. They, uh, the, the basic story he heard was that people would be uh, in their bedrooms at night, but not only in their bedrooms, they'd be driving a car or in one case, a snowmobile, they'd be out, uh, you know, walking around and they become aware of a UFO. Uh, then they would become aware of beings. Uh, they would be uh, basically powerless to, to resist. Uh, they'd be you know, beamed into this craft. 
Um, there'd be some kinds of experiments done on them or tests, uh, sometimes or frequently involving some reproductive aspect. Uh, eggs were taken from women, um, commonly is the stories they told, and sperm from men. And then later they would uh, be abducted again and shown their hybrid offspring. Um, and then they would be returned back to where they were taken from and uh, hours would have uh, you know, passed without them understanding the missing time. That's, that was a common um, aspect of their experience. So the, that's a, a basic core story that people told, but as you know, uh, not always involving abduction. Sometimes people would see beings, they wouldn't go to a spacecraft, Sometimes people would have out-of-body experiences and fly to some other location. Um, so there was a, quite a variation. Um, but, but the way the people told him these stories, um, they would often uh, weep, uh, you know, cry, curse. Uh, they would be really caught up in the emotion of recalling this experience which is another thing that convinced him they weren't making it up because he was a psychiatrist and he knew when people were faking it. Right. Um, so, uh, so that was uh, really interesting to him that the, what the psychiatrist called affect, the, the state of mind or the, the, um, the, the way people handled themselves in recalling these experiences, sometimes under hypnosis, but not always, uh, sometimes consciously. Uh, but consciously, their memories were often fogged. They didn't remember too much of, of what had happened or what they said had happened. Um, and when he relaxed them and put them in a state of not, not necessarily deep hypnosis, but you know, relaxation, uh, other details came back to them. And then and that's when they would react so forcefully with the, uh, with the trauma of what they'd been through. Now, you say trauma. Was he noticing that... Uh this trauma was basically connected to the more abusive situations when uh, these certain beings were experimenting. And did they transfer that over to other times when they had uh, the more pleasant experiences it, it, where they're taught something or it's an yeah. out of body? I mean, it, I, I'm curious about that because there, there seems to be a conflict in alien contact in our and if they are the actually uh, the same beings doing it. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Well, first of all, the trauma came when they realized they were powerless to resist, that these beings would materialize. Um, again, th this is the experience they related to, to John Mack and to other investigators. I I'm not saying this is absolutely right. you know, true in reality. This is what they said happened or what they remembered or what they felt had happened. So. They, they were traumatized because they lost power to resist, okay? And these beings were obviously very upsetting to them. But very often in John Mack's uh, experience in talking to them, uh, the, afterwards, they felt that they had been um, the beneficiary of some, of some knowledge, that they had been, um, uh, they, they were more sensitive to the fate of the earth, let's say, the, the dangers to the planet from pollution. They felt uh, in a way closer to these beings or to the sources of creation, to a God figure or you know, um, a benign power of love in the universe. So um, they, they often felt that they had been selected or picked out for some, you know, for some wisdom. And that helped them to deal with the trauma of the situation, which was still considerable. 
Now, other um, investigators like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs, a history professor at Temple University, who who also uh, shared, uh, you know, uh, experiences with, uh, or let's say, research protocols with with John Mack and Bud Hopkins, um, uh, were more um, focused on the trauma of, of these people's experiences, that the aliens were somehow evil and not there to educate, you know, humanity. Um, they were off on their own research project, uh, these alien beings, and uh, it was really traumatic and, and it was happily, happening in absolute reality. David Jacobs and, and Bud Hopkins, uh, you know, tended to, to report. So that was a difference with John Mack. He became, um, you know, not so convinced that these things were happening in, in absolute reality. I see. That's that's an interesting perspective. I I didn't anticipate that because it in coming across some of these stories, um, it, sometimes the people would say they're having more than one type of alien that they're meeting with. So it wasn't always the same type of experience. And I wondered if they were putting their um, their feelings towards the whole phenomenon in one direction when there were actually more than one faction coming their way. Well, so, you know, Heidi, I have, I have oversimplified this account mm -hmm. in order to make it, uh, uh, you know, understandable because, I mean, the whole thing is so crazy. It's not, nothing is understandable about this phenomenon. Let's, right. let's be frank. Um, but you're absolutely right that people have uh, experiencers have told of a number of, of different uh, entities that they have encountered or believe they'd encountered. Um, and it, it ran a gamut. They were the, the, the so-called greys, the small alien figures with the big heads and the bulbous eyes um, who, who were more uh, robotic and more menial. And then there were the so-called doctor figures which were taller, more human looking, who seemed to be in charge on, on the, the ships. And then there were reptilians that were like uh, reptile figures that were warrior types and, and often very harsh and, and, and uh, frightening. Um, um, so there were a, a, a group of you know, different races, you could call them, or the entity types of, of beings that people encounter. It wasn't just one kind. Um, which made this, you know, the whole phenomenon more complicated and right. more bizarre. And that's the whole thing about it. When you, once you get into it, it right. gets wilder and wilder as, you know, it's, uh, it's very hard to get your arms around. It really is. It, how do you feel when you go and you, you, you do this extraordinary book on this true believer, the believer, John Mack, uh, how do you feel when you, when you put the spotlight on his process and his thinking, how do you feel that might impact uh, those who read your book and, and take this in for what it is? Well, what I like to say is, you know, I didn't give up my journalistic uh, perspective when I took on this project. Um, I, I followed a trail of evidence that John Mack followed. Um, and um, I reported what people had told him, and he reported what people had told him. Um, uh, it's very important in this field not to, you know, speculate and, and jump to conclusions. Just to stick to what you know, what facts you can uh, you pull together. It's not always easy, but um, 
uh, he said he was only following a trail of evidence that uh, people follow in court and gets people convicted and, and, and executed sometimes. Um, now, this evidence that he was following was largely anecdotal. Uh, it was experiential. It was one person's account, but um, the accounts um, matched very often. Dif different people told similar uh, stories. Um, but he, he often made a point of saying he wasn't a believer. Um, he was just following a trail of evidence. Uh, I call the book The Believer because he believed in certain principles of courage to follow his instincts. And uh, um, he believed in, you know, a, a better world in terms of, uh, you know, uh, um, social conditions and anti-nuclear uh, you know, weapons and peace between nations, things like that. But uh, he didn't take the, all these stories just on faith. He, he checked out what he could and, uh, and, and put the pieces together. And nobody could come up with a better explanation for what accounted for these uh, experiences. Um, and, and that's what struck him. You know, they, they weren't nightmares because he had studied nightmares and they didn't always happen at night. They sometimes happened in the middle of the day when people were wide awake driving a car. Right. Um, they happened to children as young as two and three years old who didn't get their ideas from, from books uh, and movies. Um, sometimes they, they, they had scars afterwards that they couldn't remember getting or having before the, the experience. Um, and sometimes there were witnesses. Uh, in, in one case, uh, he, he, he uh, researched uh, two girls were having a sleepover and they noticed a, a UFO outside during the night and uh, during the night, one of the mothers, uh, uh, the girls came down to check on them and they were gone. Oh. So she called the police and they searched all around. They were you know, obviously uh, alarmed and panicked. And a few hours later, the girls turned up in their beds and later they recalled some kind of an abduction experience. Um, now, you know, again, here you had the mother uh, as a witness saying, I went down to check on them and they were gone. Wow. So uh, there were there were cases like this, but the evidence was always fragmentary. It was never conclusive. There were never never pictures of an abduction that would satisfy anybody. Um, so that's what makes the phenomenon really so interesting, in my view, that uh, it defied um, uh, you know conventional uh, understandings of proof and evidence. Um, very hard to pin down. And yet, when you you know hear all these accounts from people, there's a basic consistency to them that something something happened. It's not all in our minds, apparently. That uh, right, you know, our friends and family. Like I, I like the point that you made because I I often make a similar point that you know our word, if we testify in a court of law, can put somebody in jail. But here's thousands of people claiming that something is abducting them. I mean, abduction is never okay. And their word is not being taken seriously. And right. uh, it's a crime. Uh, it's a crime against humanity and, and the children. I, I've, I've watched the people um, be absolutely traumatized. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's been a devastation on many families' lives and um, right. individuals. Well, one of the things, you know, John Mack found is that these stories, these experiences seem to run in families. So if somebody had a, an abduction experience, let's say, 
a, a young mother. Um, and she, she goes back into her family history. Uh, she will often say, well, my parents told me that they had had experiences and my grandparents had it. And now I'm hearing that my children are telling stories um, about you know, beings appearing to them. And that's what did panic many, many parents that the, the idea that their children are now suffering through this too. So there seemed for some reason to be a, a pattern that runs through families. And you know, uh, why is, is not possible to know. I mean, um, it's one of the many mysteries about this. What, um, what might be behind this? You know, what, when John Mack was asked about this, he'd say, look, I'm not an expert in alien psychology. I don't know why aliens, if they exist at all, would do it this way and not that way. Right. Um, you know, why would they do the same reproductive experiments over and over again? You could get a hygiene manual. You know? <laughs> um, it's not that it's not that hard to figure out, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but again, um, these questions are, are just open ended. Why? Why did it happen this way? All he could do, uh, really, was to say, well, this is these are the stories that people tell. This, these are the fragmentary bits of evidence that we can collect. The, you know, the presence of, of UFOs associated with abductions. Sometimes the, the trees were there, you know, uh, branches were broken outside a window where people remembered a UFO landing. Um, there were these scars, um, the occasional witness corroborations, all these things he put together to say these are, you know, reasons uh, to, to give credence to these stories, but in the end, of course, no absolute proof. Yeah. Well, in the face of uh, the UFO report about to come out, uh, your book, I I'm hoping it will help uh, people to, to better digest whatever it reveals. <laughs> Well, you know, in, in the stories we've done for the Times and, you know, the things we've said about this report, we're very careful not to speculate. Um, I, I'm, I can guarantee you almost 100% that the report will not talk about aliens. Um, the, the, the government people studying these encounters are very careful to stick to the facts, which is that, um, you know, Navy pilots and sailors have seen certain things on radar. They have made certain observations. They've caught certain things on thermal imaging devices. They have seen certain things in the sky and sometimes in the water because they operate sometimes in, in the water, in and out of the water. Uh, but where they come from, uh, who's running them, what intelligence, why are they here? Where do they come? You know, all these other questions are complete speculation and will not be in the report, almost certainly. Um, and um, th that's not part of the government investigation at this point, you know, aliens. So it's yeah. very important to keep that separate. Yeah, I understand. And, uh, you know, with the technology that so many different, different countries have when it comes to holograms, being able to project images that may look like a craft, I always say it would probably be easier for the government to just go and videotape the ones they have in Area 51 instead of putting out the Tic Tac. <laughs> uh, right. Well, you know, uh, Heidi, that's interesting you say that because uh, one of the speculations all along was that this is our own technology that is, you know, deeply secret and it's showing up now. But 
uh, that has pretty much been debunked because um, uh, the government would not be uh, endangering our own pilots by running these things in airspace where uh, aircraft carrier groups are operating. Um, so uh, apart from the fact that the technology seems so far advanced to anything that we're familiar with, um, uh, it, it, it is extremely unlikely that this is our own technology and equally unlikely that it is Russian or Chinese because, you know, the best scientists that we've interviewed um, and government officials say they don't believe any earthly adversary has this uh, it's advanced and sophisticated technology. I am so really relieved to hear that because I, I can't imagine giving the credit to Russia or China beating us <laughs> to, in right. that arena. Uh, and, we, and we know, by the way, from our intelligence uh, you know, intercepts that they have been puzzled uh, as much as we uh, by these by encounters in their airspace. So, you know, when, when you listen to their intercepts or so, you find that they are noticing these things too. Now, unless they're completely, you know, fabricating their surprise and, it, you know, to pretend that they're surprised, you know, you could, you could imagine all other, you know, uh, scenarios, but it's, it's extremely unlikely that this advanced technology could be attached to another earthly power. Yeah. Well, in all of your research and all that's been going on, and here's the title of your book called The Believer, have you ultimately become a believer yourself? Well, you know what I say? First of all, um, the, the word is, is, is somewhat uh, disparaging, and I deal with that in my book because I don't want to, to let people think that John Mack was you know, the kind of gullible believer that would believe in anything. As I said, he believed in a better world and he believed in following evidence. But when it comes to me, um, I say, first of all, as regard UFOs, uh, you, you don't have to believe in UFOs. It's like saying, you know, do you believe in the sun and the moon? <laughs> do you believe in the ocean? It's there. These things are there. They are physical. They've been caught on, you know, radar and uh, thermal imaging devices, and they've been eyeballed by our, you know, best uh, trained observers, uh, jet pilots. Um, and by millions of people over the decades have, you know, uh, contributed their um, uh, accounts, their reports. Um, but we have physical evidence uh, that they exist. So whatever they are, which we don't know, right? We don't know anything about them except they exist. But that is a big breakthrough in my view. And we couldn't have said that a few years ago. You remember that Carl Jung and others, you know, called them archetypes. Uh, that they said, well, it could be, you know, a collective delusion, it could be uh, fly specks on the windshield, it could be uh, swamp gas, uh, reflections of headlights on the desert floor. I mean, all these things, yeah, some, there have been things mistaken for UFOs, for sure, satellites, planes, the planet Venus, but um, that's not what's showing up on, on Navy radar and what has been, you know, actually uh, captured by instrumentation. So uh, these things exist, but beyond right. that, who knows? Right. I, there's so much speculation on what could the agenda be now that the government's going to step forward. And and I'm always of the, the point of after all these years of keeping it silent, I don't think out of the kindness of their hearts, they're suddenly going to tell us 
everything. So they were pushed, you know, they were pushed. Yeah. I think our story in 2017 exposed the fact that the government had a secret unit, mm -hmm. uh, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. So they were studying it since at least 2007. And uh, to yeah. this day, they gave it a new name, you know, uh, UAP um, Task Force, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. Right. Um, so the government has been, um, you know, studying it. Um, and not out of the goodness of their hearts. They, I think the, the people's, you know, accounts finally caught up with them. The, the interest that the public has had, the media, um, you know, for many years, the government was dissembling, um, pretending that there was nothing there or nothing to see. It was all imaginary. Uh, they were putting out disinformation. Uh, right. The government has not had a great, you know, track record in this field. Quite but now, true. I think... Um, um, it, it has become more forthcoming. Uh, people like Lou Elizondo, who we have checked out and we regard him as a, a highly credible official, ex-official now, um, uh, did a very good job of, of marshalling, uh, you know, evidence and, and intelligence on the subject. So uh, I think we've come a long way. I, some folks uh, have told me, it's like, you know, I understand the, the, the feeling of not trusting 100% what might be coming forth, but at least it's being discussed. At least it's on the table now. And it's like, we have to be appreciative for that. And I'm like, so I'm, I'm doing my best, Ralph, to, <laughs> to, to hold on to it, that. It, it, the momentum keeps going forward. And uh, yeah, I think yeah. it's pretty hard to put the genie back in the bottle. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, truly, so, truly. Um, and, yeah, but uh, I have to tell you too that um, I, I this has just been so eye opening, and and I, I appreciate the work that you've done. And I I know that you're going to be speaking at Contact in the Desert. How uh, you're you're going to be speaking on this book and. What date and time are you going to be there? I'm going to be speaking on Saturday, the 20, uh, let me think, uh, 27th. So it's a, a week and a half away. Um, and I'm going to be doing two things. I'm going to be talking about, um, uh, you know, John Mack's research in the field of alien encounters and alien abduction uh, and my book. Um, and... Um, uh, I'll be sort of retracing his journey, you know, to 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 grapple with this mystery. It got him into trouble at Harvard, also, by the way, which he was then cleared of any any wrongdoing. But it was not a comfortable time for him. And then I'm also doing a workshop on um, the uh, the writing part of it. Uh, how what kind of challenges the story presented for a writer. Uh, how a biographer really got, gets into this role of uh, dissecting the story of John Mack um, and my own journey as a New York Times reporter, uh, very used to, to, to different things than, you know, aliens and, and UFOs and how I made the transition and what skills, you know, I brought to the to the writing process. So, and, you know, with uh, time for questions so people can, uh, sort of compare their own experiences to mine, people who are working on books, et cetera. So that's what I'll be doing at the Contact in the Desert. Wonderful. And so you're Saturday, June 26th that you're going to be. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was looking at the wrong okay. day. June no, that's 26th. okay. <laughs> the conference is from the 25th to the 28th. Yeah. I'm speaking on the 26th. 
Um, it's, it's a virtual conference, so anyone can attend um, and sign up, and then there'll be a, a, a real-time Q&A, so question and answer period for, um, uh, you know, to comment and questions. So it should be really interesting, and they, I, I'm, I'm uh, very honored and humbled to be in an unbelievable lineup of people. When you look at the, the roster of people they've gotten, who've been you know, leaders in this field for so long, um, uh, it, it's astonishing. So uh, uh, it'll, be, it'll be really eye-opening for me to be among them. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm fortunate enough, I'm gonna be speaking on June 27th, so I'll be joining you. So it, it's, it's gonna be a, a lot of fun. I'm excited to uh, watch and tune into everybody's uh, events as well. And uh, how can people, Get a hold of your book and read more about your work. Okay. So the book is called The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack, um, published by High Road Books of the University of New Mexico Press. Um, you can get it at any in, in independent bookstores, and I love to give them a plug because they need help these days, particularly um, struggling. Uh, and of course, Amazon has it in stock and... Um, uh, you can get it on your Kindle or your device so you can read it instantly. Uh, there will be an audio book July 13th, so you can listen in your car or you can, uh, if you have, you know, trouble reading, which a lot of people have contacted me asking me, you know, I have, I have trouble with my eyes. Uh, what can I, you know, do to hear your book? And so the audio version will be out next month. So um, it's easily available and... Um, my website is ralphblumenthal.com, and it lists the books, not just the latest one, other books I've done and a little bit about me. So uh, it's an easy way to get in touch and a contact tab so you can reach out to me too. Wonderful. Wow. I want to thank you so much, Ralph Blumenthal, for coming on the show. This is a lot of fun and really insightful. Well, thank you, Heidi. Real pleasure. And uh, see, see you, quote, at the conference. <laughs> uh, of course, of course. Well, everybody, we've come to the bottom of another Really fascinating show. Remember, you can catch me here on Angels to Aliens with me, Heidi Hollis, the Outlander on Believe. And please go to HeidiHollis.com. And remember, we're on your favorite directory, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and iTunes. And uh, thanks for joining me here on Angels to Aliens. Remembering always, if it's weird, we're here. Goodbye, everybody. Alien abduction, near-death experiences, and more. Get advice and insight with Angels to Aliens with Heidi Hollis, the Outlander. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.